Okay, we are in John chapter 8. Now we're going to be doing 1 through 11 this morning. So why don't we turn there now. We'll use verse 53 just to kind of, because it's the middle sentence in the ESV. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin. No more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the ministry of Jesus is revealed in places like Isaiah 61, where he sets the prisoner free. And Father, as we think of this text and the themes that are present here, there are people that need to be set free. Uh, People even in this room who need to be set free. And so we pray for the work of the Spirit through the preaching of the Word and in working in people's hearts, that they might be set free. That knowing the truth, they would be free from the things that have enslaved them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get to sermon proper, let's talk about this text a little bit. Because uh, most of you may have noticed there are brackets around this. Or sometimes there's a footnote, depending on which uh, text of Scripture you have, which translation you have. And in some, there may not even be there, okay? So some of you, I don't know, may have gone, where is what Steve is reading? Where did it go? Ah, All right, so what's going on? First off, let's admit that uh, this text is not in the earliest manuscripts that we have, okay? It's not even mentioned by the early church fathers. That doesn't mean... in terms of the church fathers, doesn't mean they didn't know of it, because we know that uh, there is a record of this in the Gospel to the Hebrews, and also the Apostolic Constitution. Two things you have probably never heard of. Okay, and I hadn't even heard of the Apostolic Constitution until I did my homework on this. Okay, what textual criticism seeks to do is it looks at all of the different families of manuscripts. And it seeks to understand which are the best manuscripts, meaning which are the ones that are closest to the original manuscripts. Because we don't have them. 
And the reason we don't have them is probably because we'd worship them, because that's how messed up we really are. Okay? So, as the Westminster Confession of Faith indicates in chapter 1, we should trust God because he has faithfully preserved the scriptures. And so the differences that we find are, generally speaking, rather small, or in this case, don't influence the doctrine of the church. There's a sense in which, if this is not in the text of Scripture, uh, the church doesn't lose anything because there's nothing new here. But I think there is something good here. As we uh, look at this text, most conservative scholars believe that this is an authentic story, which is probably why it's in the Gospel to the Hebrews. So, doesn't mean it didn't happen, just means it probably wasn't in John's Gospel. However, if you take it out, you sort of get this. The end in 52, they replied to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, Jesus spoke to them. Sort of doesn't make sense without this in there. And so this is a, a good thing, I think, that it probably does not belong, as some people think, at the end of Luke 21, but I think it fits very nicely right here where it's been for many centuries. So we're going to look at this text, even though it might not be part of the original. All right, sermon proper, now that you have your little mini textual criticism lesson, okay? I'm sure all of you were thrilled about that, right? <clears throat> Hester Prynne was about to have a very hard life. And it's not because her first name was Hester. Okay? You might think so. That's really an odd name, but maybe some of you know a Hester. The problem was, was that Hester, though her husband had not been seen for over two years, the two years in which she had been in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, had shown up pregnant. That indicated one thing. She was an adulteress. So she had been placed in prison, and the book, The Scarlet Letter, begins on the eve of her release from prison. She has but one more night to go in prison and one more interrogation. Because Hester has never given the identity of the man with whom she conceived that child. And they want to know. Because she is not the only guilty party in this mess. There's also a him that they want to bring to justice. And so she is examined by one of the the leading pastors in Boston, and then her own pastor pleads with her, Reverend Dimmesdale, to make a sure confession about who he is. Of course she doesn't do that. And of course now she's going to have to wear what is called the scarlet letter, a red A that is going to be placed upon her garment. So it will go everywhere that she goes and will identify her to everyone else as an adulteress. One lady in the crowd was talking to another and said, let her cover the mark as she will. The pang of it will always be in her heart. The idea being that though she might cover it up, though she might pretend it doesn't exist, though she might even perhaps run away and tear it off so that no one else knows, she's always going to bear the guilt and the shame 
that have produced the red letter, the scarlet letter that she now wears upon her dress. It wasn't just her, of course, but her, her daughter, Pearl, who was born and now is going to be set out of the prison. The child that many started to say, maybe she's really the spawn of the devil. And so the shame that goes to Hester is now given to the child. Both of them are outcasts. She finds a little cottage that has been deserted outside of town, on the outskirts, where no one will really bother her, where she plies her trade of sewing and embroidery to eke out a meager existence. Shame, as well as guilt, are all she knows henceforth. There's another woman that knows something about guilt and shame, and that is the woman that we encounter here in John 8. Jesus' response is going to be very different from the response of the the rulers of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But this woman's experience is going to be in some ways very similar to that of Hester Prynne's. She's going to know guilt and exposure before the crowd. Jesus, however, is the one who bears our guilt and shame to remove them that we might have them no more. But let's start with the reality that we cannot avoid that sin produces guilt and shame. Now, in this text, we see that Jesus, having left the temple, and this this is probably a good argument for uh, Jesus' proclamation that we talked about before being on the seventh day, when he said, you know, come to me and I will give you water, that one. Being, so being on the seventh day of the feast and this being the eighth day, because Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives where he usually stays, as we find in Scripture, whenever he goes to Jerusalem for these feasts. And the next day he comes back to the temple and he begins to teach. Now John is not very concerned at that point about what he's teaching, but John is very concerned about the controversy which is about to break out. Because while Jesus is teaching... The crowd shows up. Well, there's a crowd, but then there's another crowd. A crowd made up of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're dragging along a poor woman. The scribes, for those of you who don't remember or who have never heard, they were sort of the professional theologians and scholars within the community of Israel. Okay, these were the guys who, you know, went to scribe school, seminary. Okay, they learned about the scriptures. They were professionals. This was their job. Their vocation was to teach people the meaning of the scriptures. Okay. You also have the Pharisees. That's not their job, but that's sort of like they're sort of the fundamentalists of the day. There was a theological movement. They were very conservative in how they understood the scriptures. And so many of the scribes were also Pharisees, not all of them. Okay. Some of them were a little on the liberal side. Okay. But a lot of them were on the conservative side of things. And as these groups, these guys, these very conservative guys who show up dragging this woman. And so the controversy begins. We must remember that they had tried to arrest Jesus and it didn't work. The guards, the temple guards showed up and said, hey, no one has ever spoken like this man. And so I like how A.W. Pink puts this. The roar of the lion had failed, and now we are to behold the wiles of the serpent. 
They want to trick Jesus. They want to test Jesus. And so they have this woman who, as this text says, was caught in the act of adultery. That's a pretty tricky thing to do, I imagine. Not sure how you do that. Because it's a whole bunch of people. It's not like a guy coming home and discovering this. Okay, this they went, must have gone looking or there was some sort of trap that was set. We're not sure. There's so many questions that emerge as we think about this that we'll not, we're not going to get the answer to. But one of the most profound questions is, where's he? Where is the man? As we read earlier from Deuteronomy, it's not just her who's guilty. It's not just her who's liable for the death penalty. It's also the man. How is it that he could get away and she couldn't? An injustice is being perpetrated here because the man is not present. We'll get more into that. But we'll see it's, you know, this is quite different from what we see in the Scarlet Letter, because there they're pressing. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And that question never ends. That question is always there because the child is always there. And as the child grows, one day she shows up and she has a green A on her dress. And it's in part by coincidence. But she begins to ask her mother, why is that there? And then she asks the very strange question for someone of her own age, which at that point was about seven. Why does the reverend hold his hand over his heart? She was a very perceptive little child. Far more perceptive than all of the adults in this community, frankly. But why? Who? Who is this? These men don't bring these answers to Jesus. But she is guilty before the law. We do see that there are witnesses, a number of witnesses, more than the two or three that are required to meet the the mosaic um, minimum standard for the death penalty. Guilty as charged. So there's not a question of that. But it's not just her guilt that we see here, but also they expose her. They place her in the midst There she is. We don't know what she's wearing or not wearing, seeing as, remember, she was caught in the act. We don't know in what condition they dragged her, but she's in front of the crowd that Jesus was preaching to. This is not just, you know, hey, Jesus is in the house, they knock on the door and drag her in. This is in the temple. Many people who were there as pilgrims for this feast are present and see this woman dragged before them and declared to be adulteress. And so she knows not just the guilt of what she has done, but she knows the shame of what she has done. She is being exposed before this community as an adulteress. She cannot live this down. People will remember. They have memories. I mean, this is, a, this is a remarkable event. They would remember this one, and they would remember that face. She's never going to be able to walk away from this with anything resembling a good reputation intact. That was the purpose of the Scarlet Letter, was to shame you. Not just about your guilt, but also to shame you so that people would kind of stay away from you because you were a defiled person, a dirty person. You see, 
Guilt is about what we've done. It's sort of a courtroom word. You're guilty or you're innocent. You're guilty or you're righteous. It's a courtroom kind of concept. But shame is a little bit different. Shame is about who you are. It's about who you are with respect to the rest of the community. You're in or you're out. You're welcome or you're not. Hester, living on the outskirts of town, was not welcome. She served a purpose within their community, but that was begrudgingly because there was no one else who did what she did. Shame in the scriptures is all about this term defilement, or as it's sometimes called, whether something is clean or unclean. And if something is unclean, it is to be rejected by the community as dirty or worthless. And people who were unclean ceremonially were to go outside of the camp until they were made clean. Now, there's certain things that you can't come back from. Okay? Where does this uncleanness, where does this defilement come from? Now, in the Old Testament, there were those certain things, there were the, in, in particular the food laws, uh, that there were unclean foods, things you weren't supposed to eat. And Jesus addresses that in Mark 7 in the context of the Pharisees are complaining because Jesus' disciples don't always wash their hands before they eat. They eat, and that was one of the traditions of the elders. You know, especially if you were in the, in the marketplace, you were to wash your hands. So that, you know, and moms tell their kids this all the time, right? Before dinner, wash your hands before you eat. It's not a bad thing. But what Jesus is reminding them is that it's not the dirt that defiles you. Now, it might make you sick, but, you know, but our, our sons have good immune systems. They've been built up from dirty hands stuffing food in mouths. It's okay. Really, it, it is. This, the five-second rule, it, you, know, you can extend that if you want. It builds the immune system. It does, really. So, He's addressing that when he talks about how what really defiles you, what really matters is what comes out of you or out of your heart. Particularly, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within... And they defile a person. So, let's think about that for a second. She falls in there. Adultery. But think of all the, all the sins that Jesus lists that we tend not to think of in terms of defiling us, making us unclean. Theft. Well, it depends how much you steal and who you steal it from, right? Whether or not you should feel shame. Pride. When was the last time you thought about how pride defiles you, makes you spiritually unclean, pollutes your heart? When's the last time you thought of that when your pride arose? Coveting. There's another one we don't seem to think of as being all that bad. And yet Jesus says that this arises from within, it's an evil thing, and it defiles a person. It makes them unclean. Therefore, not welcome in the presence of God. Foolishness. We shouldn't really spend too much time there, should we? Okay? 
All right, but you see this idea. Sin produces not just guilt, but sin also produces uncleanness or shame. And here's the reality. We all sin, we all feel it. It may be different degrees, but we experience it. Okay? Now, here's the deal. You're only guilty if you commit the sin. But you can experience shame not only if you commit the sin, but if the sin is committed against you. We see that with uh, the virgin in the fields. She's defiled. Not by her own guilt, not by her own wickedness, but by the wickedness of another. And so there are some sins that people commit against others that place shame on them, uncleanness, defilement, impurity. And they feel the, people feel the weight of it. They feel dirty. And most of you know what most of those sins would be. That wouldn't cause someone who has been sinned against to feel dirty and unwelcome and unwanted, broken. The Reverend Dimsdale, for those of you who are familiar with the story and those of you who caught what I just said a little bit earlier, he was guilty. No one else knows who did this. Who was the other, who was the man in all of this? It was the Reverend Dimmesdale. And he was also affected deeply by his own guilt and his shame. Dimmesdale, racked by his guilt and shame, acted more like a monk than a Puritan. He would have late night vigils. He would scourge himself with a whip as if somehow that could take away the guilt and shame that he experienced. He would, as I mentioned earlier, keep his hand over his heart, precisely because he, he imagined within his guilty conscience that there was an A there, and that people could see it. And he was afraid of being outed, of being known as the one, losing his place within society, losing everything, and going to jail. In fact, later he would carve an A into his chest because of the guilt and the shame that he was experiencing. He says in one point, when he's talking privately with Hester, were I an atheist, a man devoid of science, a wretch with coarse and brutal instincts, I might have found peace long ere now, nay, I never should have lost it. And so he, he recognized that if he was an atheist, he wouldn't feel what he feels. It's precisely because he believes in the existence of a holy and just God that he feels the weight of his sin. Shame and guilt, what they do is they keep us from God and each other. Hester was excluded from the community. And Hester, feeling shame, hid herself from others outside of town. The Reverend Dimsdale is not known by anybody. He's, he's admired by, by so many people, but they don't know him. It's a facade. 
It's a game that he's playing. And inside, he's driven by his shame to hide. Hiding. Just this morning, I got an email from someone that I know. And they admitted of a problem within their family. A problem that had existed for years, but had been covered up in shame so that no one outside the family knew. And it's heartbreaking because the body of Christ could have come and could have helped, could have assisted, supported, encouraged, prayed, and they suffered alone in silence for years because of the shame. That's what it does. It drives people underground so they don't get the help they need from the people who can help them. That's what it does. That's what we see. But we also see something else, is that sometimes it can cause us to attack other people. We see this right here in the text. They brought this woman that they might have some charge to bring, not against her, but about Jesus. You see, their goal is not to bring this woman to justice. This, their goal is to make Jesus' life difficult. He's known as being perhaps lenient with regard to those who sin. Remember, he hung out with the, the publicans and the sinners and all those folks, you know? And so they're trying to say, they're trying to reveal him either as light on sin or discredit him in their eyes if he says, yes, she deserves the death penalty, and therefore perhaps give them opportunity to say to Rome, look, this guy's causing trouble. He wants us to kill people. Jesus is supposed to be tossed upon the horns of a dilemma here because of the guilt and shame that they have as well that we'll see in a little bit. There's a fourth main character in the Scarlet Letter, and that is the mysterious doctor who shows up the last day that Hester is in prison. It's her husband. Now, he has shame. Not the shame of a, as a husband who has been, uh, whose, whose marriage has been destroyed by another, but as, we, as they talk, he is much older than her. This was probably some sort of arranged marriage, and she, she admits that she never loved him or even pretended to love him. But he feels a deep sense of shame about his, his decrepitness and his age. And what this man does is he works his way into the life of the Reverend Dimmesdale, who doesn't know who he is. And in their private conversations, he somehow discerns the truth about Reverend Dimmesdale, and he begins to use it against him, to destroy him, seeking his revenge, so that he becomes a shell of a man. He is just weakened physically. He's, he's made frail. The attack upon him driven by his own shame, the doctor's shame. And so we all sin, and therefore we all have some experience with guilt and with shame. No one gets out of here without it. Here's the good news, okay? Jesus bore our guilt and shame to set us free from that guilt and shame. And we have to remember that a lot because we sin. Jesus, it says... 
now wrote in the dirt. He bent down, he wrote in the dirt, and he's exasperating the scribes and the Pharisees. They're pressing him. Come on, where's the answer? Why, I mean, what, what's with the writing in the dirt sort of thing? We don't know. John doesn't tell us. John doesn't seem to think that it is a very important thing, but of course, we've got to know. <laughs> don't we? One theory is that he's writing out the rules of evidence from Exodus. Okay, that is a theory. A second theory is that he's writing their sin right there. Third is that he's writing their condemnation. I like this one. Most people point to Jeremiah 17, verse 13. And when you, when you hear this, you go, okay, I can't prove that's what Jesus wrote, but my, that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus would have written. The Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Fits in with what we saw the previous day. Fits in with the writing in the dirt. Fits in with the fact that they have, in a sense, turned away from God. That's his accusation against them. You've turned against God. This is a mockery of justice that we see taking place here. The fourth reason. Maybe I only thought of this because I think of this one because I think of R.C. Sproul buying time. See, that's what he does when he writes on the whiteboard, and that's what I sometimes do when I write on the whiteboard. I'm thinking about the next thing I'm going to say. You know, and so Jesus could be sitting there writing, and he could simply be thinking, okay, calculating all of these things, bringing, thinking about the different texts of Scripture that, that bear on this matter. We're not sure exactly what Jesus did that moment. But what he does do, when he finally stands... He says, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, Jesus here is affirming the law. He's affirming the fact that she's guilty and she should be stoned. But he's going further than that. He's affirming other parts of the law which indicate that the first people who throw the stones are supposed to be those who are the witnesses to the sin. It's not like you can make the accusation and disappear. You're supposed to be the one who throws the first stone. Deuteronomy 17 mentions this. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so the first people to throw stones are supposed to be the witnesses. And so he says, guys, those of you who are without sin, that's pretty vague now, isn't it? Pick them up, go at it. Now that could mean that they didn't want to throw stones and get in trouble with Rome, or more likely, they knew their own sin. Perhaps even the very sins that led them to that place at that moment. The guilt of trying to set Jesus up to destroy him. The guilt of perhaps entrapping this woman into an act of immorality. We don't know. 
but starting with the oldest, going down to the youngest, they file out. She is now left alone with Jesus and the crowd. Remember, they're still there. The focus has been on the scribes, the Pharisees, the woman, and Jesus. But here, remember, the crowd is right there. And how does Jesus respond to her? Neither do I condemn you. So Jesus does not call for the execution of the death penalty against her, even though she is obviously guilty. But he makes this a very public thing. And this is something that is very lacking in our society thanks to the media. The media is really good at talking about when someone's arrested. Not so good if they're cleared. And so the reputation gets soiled in the announcement of so-and-so is arrested or so-and-so is a person of interest or not so good on, okay, we thought they were guilty, but they're not. Jesus makes the public declaration Okay, in front of all the people who had just heard how she was caught in the act, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Very public, because of the public accusation and the public shaming that she experienced. Now, let us think for a moment. Let us remember that all of us at some point must stand before Jesus. Either we're going to stand before him in the present or in the future. Like, I mean, that great throne future, not just next week kind of future. Okay? R.C. says that because each one of us comes to God like this woman, guilty, ashamed, naked, and exposed... But Christ clothes us with the cloak of his righteousness, covering our nakedness and shame, and says to us, neither do I condemn you. Now, all of this is rooted in Romans 8.1. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation. And, of course, if you, if you look in the Greek, the word no is loaded to the front of it so that you get the point. Emphasis, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not like some of your sins are forgiven, but you know God, God you know, maintains the right to bring you up on charges for other sins of yours that you've committed. Now, all of us must stand before Jesus with our guilt and our shame. There's no avoiding this. What happens next is what's different. We can either repent of our guilt. We can repent of what brought us shame. And he can relieve us of that burden. Or we cling to it and continue to run our lives by it. And so faith embraces this reality of, of Christ as the one who bears our guilt, who removes our guilt, but also our shame. Because they go Together. How does he do this? Two texts. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. That's the essence of shame. 
to be cast out, to be rejected. And so not only did were our transgressions placed upon him, but he bore our guilt, I mean, our shame. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. They couldn't even look at him when he was bearing our shame. And we esteemed him not. And so Isaiah 53 is not, is, includes not just our guilt that is laid on Jesus, but our shame that is laid on Jesus. Additionally, Hebrews 13, so also Jesus suffered outside the gate, outside the city, kicked out because of his guilt and his shame that was imputed to him, our guilt and shame, not his own, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So this connects with last week's sermon. Jesus invites us to, to wear his shame that we might then share in, sorry, share in his shame that we might then in the future share in his glory and honor. That's exactly what Hebrews 13 is talking about. Go outside where he is now, you know, bear his reproach with him, but you'll receive something far greater in the future. Part of the, the, the wonder of our adoption by God is that our shame is removed. We who were excluded, we who were far off, have been brought in near, and not just near, made sons, children of God. There's no one closer than your own children except your spouse. Made near. And so it's not that our shame then becomes his, but his glory will become ours. This week there was a a news report on ESPN about Kesey Clemens signing with Texas. And you know what? No one would have cared about Casey Clemens signing to play baseball for Texas Longhorns except for the fact that Roger Clemens is his dad. That's it. He receives the glory, or depending who you are, the shame (laughs) of his father. And at that moment, it seemed to be the glory of his father. The, the shame part got pressed aside and all of this stuff. He has borne our shame so that we can receive his glory by breaking us close into this. Oh boy. One of the realities that we have to face is that the past isn't the past until you deal with it. Meaning, Unless you deal with your past, unless you deal with what you have done or what has been done to you, it will remain in your present. It will continue to intrude its way into your present. It's like static cling with the sock you didn't realize was stuck to your pants. It's going to go with you everywhere you go that day until someone goes, Steve, dude, you got a sock hanging off your pants, okay? Or, you know, dryer thing or something. It's going to stick with you. It doesn't go away until you deal with it. And the only way to deal with it is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. He offers to take it. We're fools not to. 
And unfortunately, you and I, we can continue to live in our guilt and shame that he has already removed. Because there are still pockets of unbelief within our hearts. There are still pockets that think that we don't deserve all of this and we can still live in this shame. John knew this. 1 John chapter 3. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us. Now catch that. He's saying sometimes your heart condemns you. Sometimes you feel the weight of your guilt. You feel the weight of your shame. Sometimes you have to reassure yourself with the truths of the gospel. Jerry Bridges would say, every day. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He knows all that you've done. He also knows how you use it to keep everybody away. But he wants to draw near. And he's greater than your heart. And the truth of the gospel can break down your walls and your masks so that you become known by God and known by other people. In other words, we have to begin to recognize the ways in which we still live in guilt and shame, to recognize that sometimes our anger is a result of our guilt and shame, or perhaps our eating problem. We're trying to cover up our guilt and shame. Perhaps our drug problem. Depression. It can show up in so many ways precisely because we're so, we're, in some ways we're very simple, in other ways we're very complex. But how it shows up, you need to recognize it for what it is. And you need to say, Jesus, that is the wrong way for me to deal with what I feel. Help me. Take away my experience of this guilt because of what you have done on the cross. Take away my experience of shame because you have borne. Replace that voice in your head with the voice of Jesus in the Scriptures. So, we can unburden our souls of our guilt and shame at the cross because Christ bore them. Third, last, short. I know. I, that's, this is why, if those of you who watched, saw me on Facebook, I kept repeating um, one of Richard Pratt's principles. You can't say everything Anytime you say, or every time you say anything, there's so much here I want to say, but I can't say. Jesus calls us to lead a new life, a new kind of life. You see, grace doesn't just leave, leave us in sort of this innocent and accepted state. There's a radical call that Jesus offers with it, and it's a call that's consistent with what we see in Paul's letters. So it's again, this is not adding anything new, but this is another manifestation of it. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Biblical salvation includes and involves a radical break from sin. It's not sin no more and then come to me. It's not get yourself all cleaned up and acceptable for me and then come to me. It's like you have come to me, you're now clean, live like it. Huge difference in how we think about that and therefore how we live. Now you see, although they were church members and a pastor, Hester... And Dimmesdale did not do this. 
It corrupted their obedience, what looked like obedience. You see, Hester would give away much of her money, but she would give it away to people who were less miserable than herself. In other words, her charity and generosity was rooted in the fact that she thought she was worthless, or at least worth less than the people she was helping. She deserved to suffer poverty. They didn't. And so she gave to them who were in better straits than she was. They should have been giving to her. It was a function of her shame. Dimmesdale, he's wasting away. The people applaud him and honor him for his continued perseverance in the ministry. I mean, they don't know what's going on in his heart. And what he says is that the people's honor only increases his misery. And so it looks like faith and good works, and it's not. Bad works. So guilt and shame try to get you to obey in order to remove your guilt to gain your freedom, to remove your sin and shame. But the Christian, because of Christ, declared righteous and accepted in the beloved, obeys because he or she knows they are loved by God and are expressing, in part, their gratitude and their wonder. If you love me, you will obey me. And so the question comes, why do you obey? Are you obeying because of the wonder you have at the the joy of salvation, that you have been accepted in Jesus and your heart overflows because of the Holy Spirit and good desires? Or do you still think you're trying to work off your guilt and shame like a slave in a mine? Calvin notes that the design of the grace of Christ, that the sinner being reconciled to God may honor the author of his salvation by a good and holy life. Or as Sproul puts it in shorter sentences, those who are forgiven should gladly put aside their sinful ways and walk in newness of life. Another way to look at this very, 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 very briefly In um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the log in your eye and the speck in your brother's eye. This is about removing the log so that you can help your brother with the speck. If you go to the, the longer quote by Calvin in the reflection, you will see that this is exactly what he's talking about, how we make war on sin. We have to deal with the sin in our hearts so that we can help the sin in other people. We have to hate the sin in us just as much as we hate the sin in other people. Now, there's a danger for some of you. Your danger is to hate the sin you commit more than the sin of others because you live in that shame. And so you're hard on you and you're soft on them. Just as hard on yourself as on others, just as gracious toward yourself as others, as God has been to you. All right. 
Songwriter Charlie Peacock in one song calls uh, guilt and shame a dangerous pair. As I thought about it this morning, I said, they're like thugs. Two thugs that work together, trying to keep us in fear and hiding lest we be found out. In a sense, they are extortionists. That's their racket, extortion. They know the truth about you, and they try to use it against you. See, but here's the thing. Jesus also knows the truth about you. Jesus takes that guilt and shame as his very own, as your substitute. And in a sense, he sort of photoshopped the extortionist's video and put himself in it instead of you. We are free from the penalty and readily accepted by God and the church as a result. And so, are these thugs still running your life? Are these extortionists still, you know, putting you through the paces? Or have you experienced the freedom of grace in Christ, and that's running your life? Who do you serve? Guilt and shame? Jesus Christ, the Savior. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to preach about, but it's harder to live. It's harder to live in that nearly ubiquitous feeling of guilt and shame. To feel hounded, fearful of being found out. All of us have lived that way. Some of us might still live that way. And we pray that the Spirit would apply the work of Jesus so that we wouldn't. That we would live in light of the superabundant mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So that we can let people know who we are and not be afraid anymore. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.